So hey, it's Ryan Middleton. Welcome back to His Word. Glad that you joined me today. You know, the funniest thing happened the other night. My family and I were driving on the road, and we get overwhelmed by this temptation. We need a donut, and we need one right now. But the closest donut shop was about 45 minutes away from us, so we had to make a decision. Do we just go back to the house and fight this temptation all night long, regretting the fact that we didn't react on it? Or should we drive the 45-minute travel to the closest donut shop and satisfy our fleshly desire. Well, we made the decision that I believe anybody in our circumstance would have made. We did travel the 45-minute journey to grab this donut. And when we got there, we walked through the door, and we were all so excited. We couldn't wait to get our hands on these sugary donuts. But in front of us, we were faced with the decision. There was hundreds of donuts behind the glass, and they all were so colorful, and they looked so yummy, and we didn't know which one to pick. And now as we gazed through the glass... Looking at these donuts, the lady behind the counter was getting aggravated. Order, please. Order, please, she said. So we, trying to appease her, said, fine, I would like a, I would like a glaze. Then she'd go to reach. No, 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 no. I, oh, uh, I want a chocolate sprinkled. Give me a chocolate sprinkled donut. Yeah, that's exactly what I want. And she would reach for that one. And it's, oh, no, wait. I didn't know that you had cinnamon apple donut. That's what I want. And she was so upset, so angry that she was throwing these donuts in the box. And we ordered eight of them. And when we got done, she said, you don't want to go for 12? You've already got eight. And we said, oh, well, let me think. No, no, eight is good. Eight is good for us. And she grabs the box and she basically throws it to the lady behind the cash register. And she says, here, ring them up. They're all mixed up. And I was looking at her and I was... A little, little bit out of shape. I was a little saddened because here she is. She's angry with me. She's upset. And I felt like I need to be made right with her, but I don't know what I did to make myself not right with her. And I could ask her, are you okay? But I didn't know if that was the right thing. So what I did was I apologized. I said, ma'am, I'm sorry for the confusion. And she told me whatever and walked away. You know, when we come across people that are angry with us and we don't know why, it's hard to digest this. It's hard to take this in because we want people to be happy with us, at least for the most part. That is true. And when they're angry, we at least would like to know what we have done wrong so that we can justify it within ourselves, or so that we can explain it away if we did something wrong or we can ask for forgiveness. But Hear this lady, I don't know that there was a way that I could have approached her and received forgiveness. 
And, you know, I think about it. Here she is. Um, I was obviously in need of being made right with her because she was angry. And I couldn't obtain that. And I was, I was bent out of shape a little bit. And she works at the donut shop. Imagine standing before a God, a holy, just, and righteous God. Standing before the God who has created all of heaven and earth and everything that is in and on it. A God that created you by his mere breath. And standing before him and knowing that he is irritated with you, knowing that he is angry with you. Now take this little simple feeling that I had of trying to apologize to this lady and magnify that times an unnumerable number. And that is the feeling that we would have standing before just God, having not been made right. But you see, the method of being made right in the eyes of God is to, at the very least, say difficult to figure out. I get that from John chapter 3, verses 8, where it says, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The process is unclear for people who have not yet been made right. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And to go one step farther, it's currently being studied by the angels as to make an effort to understand the fullness of this amazing miracle. I find that in 1 Peter 1, 12, where it says, it was, it was revealed to them, they were not serving themselves but you. When you spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even the angels long to look into these things. So despite the fact that it's difficult to explain in depth, what we do know about being made right with God is that it's done through Jesus. It's a, it's a work that Jesus does. You see in Acts chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, it says that apart from Jesus, there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then in Romans 10.10, 10, it says that it is with our hearts that we believe and we are justified. There's a, there's a word there that we're going to focus on. We are justified, and with our mouth we confess, and we are saved. So I'm assuming to be made right with God is to be justified with God. Now we're beginning to unpack the reason behind this confusion. Right there where it says, in our heart we believe and are justified. Right there, that, that's the part that's confusing to me, because I'm trying to figure out here, if we're justified by believing in our heart, how is it possible that we can read Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, where it says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure? Who can understand it? And then be okay with what it says right there in Romans 10, where it says we believe in our heart and we are justified. So how can something so deceitful believe in something so good? What does it say in Psalms chapter 14? What does that say? That says that the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand and any who see God, all have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, no, not even one. So there you go. According to the text itself, you have a bunch of people who are corrupt and who don't understand and are being led by their evil and deceitful hearts. They've all turned away from God and they never seek him. Now, here's the kicker. You ready? The only way for them to be justified by God it's for them to do the very thing that they can't do according to God. But what does it say about the word justified? All right, if all eternity is hanging in the balance on this one word, 
what the heck does it mean? I'm sure you've heard it explained that to be justified is justified never sinned. If I'm justified, then it's justified never sinned. Mm-hmm. But is that really what it means, or does it perhaps have another meaning to it? You know, cliches, they're nice and everything, but I want to figure out exactly what does the Word have to say about justification, because if I ask you to give me a verse that says, it's justified never sinned, well, you might have some trouble finding it. And then... You and I, we wasted a bunch of time simply chatting over the Bible without finding any meanings or having any ground to stand on. We haven't learned anything. We've just exchanged ideas. Hmm. So what do we do then to figure out exactly what justification means? How, how, do, how do we figure out what this word is? I mean, if this is how we're made right with God, how do we figure out what it is? Any ideas? Oh, you know what? Actually, I do. I have one. I have an idea. All right, so, all right, first, let's figure out exactly what justification is not. It is not being set free after successfully pleading our defense in court. I can promise you that. Being justified is not pleading your case before God and being set free. Because Romans chapter 319, it says, Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and that the whole world may be held accountable. Did you see it? Did you catch it? There's two words right there. Silenced and accountable. How can you plead your case if you're silenced? And how can you be acquitted if you're held accountable? No, 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 no. Justification, it must happen before the court appointment. It absolutely has to happen before the trial even begins. And if it has something to do with our being accepted or being acceptable to God, then we need to ask the question, why are we accepted or being counted acceptable to God. What reason is there to consider some not acceptable and some acceptable? I assume that when it says that we must have something to do with Romans chapter 3, verse 23, whereby it reads that all have sinned and all have fallen fallen short of the glory of God. You know, in that verse right there, it actually parallels uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 20. It says that no one is righteous as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned away, together they have became worthless. You know, and then it says that no one does good, not even one, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive, the venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. (laughs) And then it says, and the way of peace they have not known, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, all through the Bible, it reads about how evil people are, and it makes note that all are equally bad. There is no separation where you can clearly define where one group is better than another group in the spectrum of good versus bad. And in fact, it may even appear that the moment you try to draw a line where in doing so you attempt to point out one group of folks who are better than another group within your own opinion, well, you in essence condemn yourself. At least that's what happened in the book of Luke. Check it out, chapter verse 18. So at this point, here's what we've done. We've drawn the conclusion that every one of us have a court date coming where we will be required to give an account to God for everything that we have done. Wait a minute. You know what? Let's try to read this. Where is it at? It's in Matthew what was it, Matthew twelve thirty six? It says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. 
Now, obviously, if we're going to give an account for every careless word we speak, then everything greater than the word, which is deed, we will by far give an account for that. So, so I think it's correct to assume that Matthew 12, verse 36 is saying that everybody in the world is going to give an account for every single thing that they did. The problem here is that the evidence is going to be stacked against us. And there is no defense to be raised in our case. We being unholy, standing before what is holy, will be without a word, unable to speak on our behalf. Now it's starting to make sense why justification must occur before the trial date. But we still haven't figured out what it is. One of the best ways to research this is to look into what some of the well-known theologians have had to say about this word justification. So I decided to research it in a particular book called Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. And this is what I found out. He says... A right understanding of justification is absolutely critical to the whole Christian faith. Once Martin Luther realized the truth of justification by faith alone, he became a Christian overwhelming with a newfound joy of the gospel. So then he describes how when Paul gives an illustration of the process of salvation, he mentions justification explicitly. And he refers to a couple of verses, such as Romans chapter 8, verse 30, and those he predestined, he also called, and those who he called, he justified, and those who he justified, he also glorified. Romans three twenty six. he points out that justification is God's response to our faith. Here's the verse. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So now we're beginning to understand that justification, it comes by us having faith. It's almost like if we have faith, then God gives us justification as the result of the faith. But let's, let's go a little bit farther into this and see what else we can find out. Justification has to come by faith and not by the law. Now, this right here is, a, is according to Romans chapter 3, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, it says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have faith, believed in Jesus Christ, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So it's simple now. I think that justification being made right by God is simply having faith in God, and it's not by any works that we do, to receive faith in God. So here I am, back pedal a little bit. I'm in the donut shop. Here's the donut lady. She's ticked off at me because my family took longer than 30 seconds to order eight donuts. She's freaking mad. Now, I can try to make myself right by believing in her. I believe that you're back there, and I believe that you're making my donuts, and I believe you're making them very well. I believe in my heart that you're doing a great job. Now, I'm referring man to person here. I can't justify by faith. It's not going to work. So on the human level, perhaps I could have been justified by works. Perhaps I could have said, listen, I'm so sorry that we took a long time to order these donuts. I mean, we seriously went way over a minute. And what I would like to do is I would like to clean this this entire shop for you. I'd like to make a sign. I'm going to go home and I'm going to make it. I'm going to be like, these are the best donuts in town. I'm going to put it outside. And then I'm going to have flyers. I've got flyers. My family, we're going to spend the next two weeks going door to door, knocking on the door and handing people flyers to say, hey, listen, you want a hot donut fresh? This is the donut shop you need to go to. And I'm assuming that I could have been made right by her with my works. Now, God, it's not going to work like that. It's saying here that God has given us laws to follow, but those laws aren't going to make us justified. We have to be justified by faith. 
How is it then that we're commanded to keep the law, but the law is not what saves us? Perhaps there are some who keep the law to look good in front of people, and then there are others who uh, willingly obey the law because they have been justified, and now that's just how they work. You know, they're part of God's kingdom. God is in them. He's, he's promoting them to do good, and they are attempting to do the good that he's promoting by keeping uh, some of the good things that he said. Like, we don't want to lie because we love Jesus, and like we feel like if we lie, then we have condemnation. Uh, I mean, condemnation, we, we, you know, Jesus backs away. We feel that, and, you know, we regret it. We keep the truth because God is in us promoting the truth. Uh, believers in the book of James where it talks about you are justified by keeping the law. And there what he is saying is that according to men, according to people, you justify yourself by keeping the law. But that's not what saves you. Faith is what saves you, not the law, not the deed. So the law can't save us. It's got to be faith. All right, so now why do we need the justification? What is the point behind it? Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there was, there was three words there, we have peace. The purpose of justification is to provide you peace. Without it, you can't have peace. In fact, the opposite of justification is condemnation. And to be condemned is to be, uh, that's a heavy weight to carry. There can be no peace in being condemned. But my absolute favorite part concerning justification from the book of Romans is by far Romans chapter 8, verse 33 through 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who can, who can bring a charge against the elect when it is Jesus who stands before God saying, they're good. They're good. I don't care what you think. I'm good. If I'm justified, I'm good. People's thoughts don't matter about me, only about themselves and about God. Am I concerned what they think? But me, I have one who stands in the courtroom for me, who pleads my case, who justifies me. Now, I was curious, however, if there was any place in the Old Testament that would provide me some insight on justification by faith and not by works. The reason for this is that some have expressed their belief in justification and how that it comes after you're baptized. You've got to be baptized to be justified. And I have a great deal of concern with that statement because in order for that to be true, we have to remove the text that explains that justification is by faith and not by works. So to figure out what it said in the Old Testament, I looked in the New Testament. In fact, I looked into Romans chapter 4, namely verses 1 through 12, and it reads this way. What then shall we say gained by Abraham our forefather? According to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from the worst, check this out, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. 
Is this blessing then for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of his righteousness that he had by faith when he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteous would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was even circumcised. So now there are some people who even say, hey, listen, even Abraham had to do work to be accepted by God. That's why he was accepted is because he was circumcised. But that's baloney. That's, 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 that's bullcrap. I'm going to tell you why. There's a gap of time between Abraham being circumcised and Abraham being accepted by God. And it was in the reverse order. So we can go into Genesis chapter 17, and we can figure out when Abraham was actually converted into Christianity. When was Abraham actually saved? Genesis 16, 16. It records that Abraham was saved at the age of 30, I mean, at the age of 86. At 86, he was converted. So when did he get circumcised? Flip the page. Chapter 17, verse 24, what's it say? We read that at 99, Abraham was circumcised. So how in the world was he Justified by circumcision when he was circumcised in 99, yet he was made right in 86. Because he wasn't made right by keeping the law. He was made right by having faith. And when he had faith, he just began to fulfill laws because it was God working in him, doing it, not him. Another illustration of the Old Testament justification by faith and not by works can be found in Psalms 32, 1. It can be found in 51, verses 16 and 17, whereby we discover that David is justified apart from the Levitical offerings. So even here, David, he's not justified by doing the law. He's justified by faith. And when he receives faith, then God works in him and he begins to do the law. So he's not doing the law to be made right in the eyes of man or God. He's doing the law because he loves God and is God working through him, helping him to fulfill the law. So now if I had to take justification and I had to put it into three groups, this is what I would have to say. The justification is the removal of sin's penalty. You see it is in Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. Through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of your sin is proclaimed. It's not justified, never done anything wrong. That's not what justified means. Justified is much greater than that. Justified means that Christ says, I know that you've done wrong. You've admitted your guilt. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to remove the penalty of that. So here I'm standing in court because I've committed a class A felony. And I tell the judge, I've done wrong. And the judge says, you have. And there's a sentence due to you. But you had faith in me before you came to my courtroom. So you may go home. I'm removing the punishment of your crime. I'm taking it away. Justification, it can't come when you enter the courtroom. That is to say, you can't die and stand before God being justified because we read earlier that the law will shut your mouth. You won't be able to speak 
You have that stupid look on your face that you do when you get caught in the middle of an act of doing something wrong that you know you shouldn't do, and now you've been exposed and everybody's seeing you do it, and you can't say, ah, I, I didn't do it. Uh, no, because you know you did it, and you know you're caught, and there's nothing you can say except for perhaps I'm, I'm guilty. I, I, I don't know what to say. Justification. It's faith before you enter the courtroom. It's faith in Christ before you die. That way when you do die and you stand before him, you've already been justified and you don't have to answer for all of the things that you did. The penalty of the sin has been removed. The second thing I would say about this thing of justification, this way of being made right with God through justification, is that justification is actually the restoration of God's divine favor. You see, if you look in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith and the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Did you catch that? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Remember earlier we were talking about how in the world is it possible that if we are deceitful people and we're not seeking God and we can't do anything right and everything we do is evil, then how is it possible that somebody evil can be seeking something that is holy? How is it possible that something evil can now believe in something that is good? It doesn't make sense. It's confusing. It's like an oxymoron. You can't, you can't have that. But the mystery behind it here is where it says that it is God's love who is being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And the moment that he does that, you're suddenly overwhelmed by the realization of God being real. You're suddenly overwhelmed by the fact that God is a just and a holy God and that he is bigger than anything you've ever dreamed or ever imagined. And now that he has poured his love into your heart, all you feel is the love of God and you want it, but yet you know you don't deserve it because it was nothing but darkness in there. And now the Holy Spirit showed up and is pouring this light, pouring this beautiful love into you. And you're just so overwhelmed that you have no choice but to fall on your face and cry out, Messiah, Messiah, I don't know why you're doing this. I don't, I don't deserve this. But I, but I now believe in you. I believe in you because you've poured your love in me. And now that I believe in you, I can see and I have faith. And it's like when you receive the faith, now God, he reacts on the faith that you have. But even the faith that you have, it never came from you. It came from God. So it's always him from the beginning to the end and all the way through. It's confusing because God has chosen to pour his grace out on us who don't deserve it. Us who are not worthy of it. We had no pure love in our heart. And then according to this, Romans chapter 5, God shows up and he pours his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The text goes on to read, For while we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will sacredly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God showed his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, more 
Shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For it is while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by death and the Son much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we shall also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Proof that we can't find God on our own. For even while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While we were enemies. The best part of those verses, by far, God poured his love into people who were his enemies. There's no greater love than that third point on what justification is it's it's the imputation of God's righteousness if we look in the first Corinthians chapter 1 25 through 30 we find this for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men for consider your calling brother not many of you were wise according to worldly standards not many of you were powerful not many of you were of a noble birth But God chose what is foolish of this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even the things that were not, to bring things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Who is Jesus? Yeah, he's he's the Savior. You've got that right. But the Bible says that nobody has seen God. Yet Jesus is the visible image of an invisible God. Jesus is God being made known to us so that we can see who God is. We can see his character. We can see his heart. We can see his process. Jesus Christ is God being revealed. And it says that it is the knowledge of God being revealed to us. Did you catch the part on the verse 27? God chose what is foolish of this world to shame the wise. You know, many people, I feel so stupid, you know, I just feel dumb. Uh, I don't know, I mean, it's like every time I try to do something, you know, I just feel like an idiot. I can't, yeah, I try to, I try to say stuff and I can't do it because I'm not as smart as other people. I just, I don't know, I'm just like, just want to get away. That's what I want to do. I don't know. I don't know why that is. Or what about the part there where it says, God chose what is weak? You know, I'm just never really as strong as people, man. I mean, I always, I always try to keep up, but I really can't, I can't really run as fast as them. You know, I tried to join the track team, and that, that didn't work out for me. Uh, I've, been, I've been working out, you know, twice as long as these other cats, and, you know, they're getting much bigger than I am. Just, I'm just so weak, man. I, I don't really fit in. You know, I don't know where to fit in at. I'm, I'm just weak. Just weak. God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. God chose the weak things to shame the strong. Check out 28. God chose what is low and despised in this world. The one who's folded up in the corner because they've been picked on their entire life, because they've been insulted, because they've been called names, because they've been called that they're an idiot or a fool. They've been told that they were stupid. They've been told that they have no hope. And they're starting to believe the lie. And now here they are all by themselves. And they're like, you know what? I'm just despised by everyone. Nobody wants me around. Nobody cares about me. Every time I try to make my, ma- my name known, I'm, I'm, I'm pointing out to the fact that I'm being stupider. Hey, what did it say? 
God chose what is low and despised in this world. <laughs> so to the one who feels stupid, for the one who feels weak, for the one who feels despised, they don't even realize that in their own weaknesses, that they are the ones that God is choosing to build up his kingdom. They are the ones whose God is picking to be part of his own family. So as the rest of the world points fingers, calls names, and makes fun of these people, they have no idea that these are the ones that God will raise up, that he will hold up to shine the radiance of his glory throughout the entire universe. These are the ones who will be the representatives of God. These are the ones who would judge angels and stars. These are the ones who would be given the glory of God Almighty to be made to look like him. So it's okay to feel this way, but just understand in doing so, that the more you feel that way, the greater candidate you are to be an heir of the kingdom of God, which is also the only kingdom that will never end. It is also the only kingdom that will never fade, the kingdom that will go on for all eternity. The truth is that being made right with God is receiving justification by Him. And the way that it works, the simplest way to describe it is that we're sinful people. We're, we're self-seeking. We do our own thing. We don't, we don't consider other people. And our motives, even to fulfill other people's needs, we do it with ourself in mind. It was said that no successful business person has ever been a successful business person for his family, but more so for himself. And I'm hearing more and more stories about even people in ministry who are building large ministries, and they say in the end, I determined that it was more about what I had accomplished than what I had done for the glory of God's kingdom. So here we are, all, all, all the same, all sinful, all the self-righteous, self-seeking, running from God, not understanding anything about Him. And then just randomly God picks us out of the crowd and says, I choose you. I choose you. I choose you. I choose you. And in choosing us, he's, he's pouring his love into our hearts. And as we receive the love, we begin to understand who he is, and the understanding is counted as faith. And the response to that faith is that God moves and begins to do a work in us. Being made right with God. It's about him pouring his love into our hearts. Father, in Jesus' name, I just ask of you, I beg of you right now, that as people listen to this, as they contemplate it, Father, that they would understand who you are, that they would have a greater understanding as to what it is that you do in the hearts of those who you pick. And, Father, that nobody would resist this love, Father, that when they perceive it, when they feel it, Father, that they would understand that the overwhelming sensation is the power of God Almighty being revealed in them and that they would embrace it with everything that they have and that they would run with 100% endurance and that they would never give up the fight and that they would never back away, Father, and that in doing so, you would continue to motivate them. You would continue to blow the wind under their wings so that they could continue to soar for your kingdom and that your name would magnify that you would become the source of knowledge, that you would become the source of life for everybody. In Jesus' name, amen.